Hello and welcome to Running Need Radio. This episode, Mark Walters, Dean of the Faculty of Law at Queen's University, joins our National Director, Mark Mancini, for a conversation surrounding Dean Walters' forthcoming book from Cambridge University Press, A.V. Dicey and the Common Law Constitutional Tradition. We hope you enjoy this wide-ranging episode on the history of legal theory, constitutional law, and administrative law as much as we enjoyed producing it. Stay tuned for more engaging conversations as the academic year continues. Well, welcome everyone uh, to our loyal listeners uh, to this episode of Runnymede Radio. My name is Mark Mancini and I'm the National Director of the Runnymede Society. And today I'm just so excited uh, to have Dean Mark Walters from Queen's Law here with us to discuss uh, his new book on uh, Albert Van Dicey. Uh, and we're just so excited to have Dean Walters here with us. Uh, welcome, uh, Dean Walters, and thank you for joining us. Oh, it's a real pleasure. Uh, thank you so much for inviting me. Um, I'm, I'm looking forward to our conversation. Great. So uh, for those, let, let's maybe start uh, really at, at the highest level of abstraction here and just sort of introduce the topic. So for those of our listeners who are unfamiliar, and if you can do this maybe in a nutshell, who is A.V. Dicey, and uh, why is he important, uh, especially for law students and those studying public law? Sure. Uh, so A.V. Dicey, or as you mentioned earlier, Albert Van Dicey is his full name, um, is widely regarded as uh, one of the leading writers on the British constitutional tradition. And um, he lived uh, 1835 to 1922, and his, his uh, leading book in the field, Law of the Constitution, was published in 1885. And it was hugely con- uh, controversial, yes, but influential in shaping uh, the understanding of constitutional law in in Britain, of course, but also in common law jurisdictions around the world, including Canada. In fact, it's been influential wherever uh, the basic Westminster parliamentary system of government is found, um, and also uh, to a lesser extent in other uh, systems. I guess in a, in a nutshell, um, well, in a nutshell, uh, Dicey was good at nutshells. He, he thought, uh, that the law, uh, could be arranged and understood around general principles. And for constitutional law in the common law tradition, he isolated three in particular, uh, parliamentary sovereignty, the rule of law, and, um, I guess it's less of a principle than a, than a reality, the conventions of the Constitution or the idea um, that a conventional Constitution modifies the legal Constitution. Um, I think whether we know it or not, the Dicean model for understanding constitutional law uh, is still present in legal and constitutional discourse in Canada. Um, and I can give a, a quick example. Uh, many law students will read the patriation reference uh, in their time in law school, uh, the decision of the Supreme Court of Canada from 1981. And that, that those reasons are explicitly Dicean when it comes to the distinction between the law of the Canadian Constitution and the conventions uh, that qualify the law of the Canadian Constitution. 
Mm, yes, that, that's, a, that's quite an important distinction. It's certainly one I remember learning in the early days of constitutional law and first year of law school. I think a lot of students have that same experience. So you've kind of given an overview of Dicey and, and, and in a, just a great way. Uh, but I think, I, I think it's probably, and maybe this is unfair, but, uh, on one hand, I think it, it might be fair. A lot of academic observers, especially observers of administrative law, would probably say that Dicey has uh, maybe a bad reputation for one way or another. Can you explain uh, what you think of that sort of contention? And if, if you think it's accurate, um, why, do you, why do these observers think that Dicey has a bad reputation? Right. Um, yeah, well, Dicey uh, does have a bad reputation. I think that's fair to say among many um, public law scholars, lawyers, judges in common law jurisdictions around the world, including Canada. Uh, and, and you can, um, yeah, for, for Canadian law students who want, uh, a critique of Dicey from, from a Supreme Court of Canada judge, there's a case called National Corn Growers. Uh, it's an old case now, 1990 or so. And Justice Bertha Wilson, uh, writes a scathing, <laughs> Uh, of judgments on Dicey and the need for Canadian law to escape Dicey. Um, And there is some reason for this uh, when it comes to administrative law in particular. And just uh, uh, to get to the point, I think it's, it's Dicey's famous contention that there is no such thing as administrative law in English or common law uh, thinking. Um, and so that, that's a claim that, that has to be understood in its context. Um, when Dicey said there's no such thing as administrative law in the English or common law tradition, he really meant a specific thing about administrative law. He meant administrative law of the kind or like the kind they have in France. Um, and, uh, and in other words, he was claiming that droit uh, administratif, the, the idea of administrative law in France, is so alien to the English tradition that it just doesn't exist. Um, and in that sense, he was right, um, because the, the French, the civil law tradition of public law really separates out uh, public law from other law and treats it as special and different to the extent that in France there's a, an entirely separate um, system of courts or tribunals to enforce that law. And um, if we just stop there, we can say Dicey was right. Um, no such thing like that in in the common law tradition. Uh, where he was wrong, however, is that in, in suggesting or implying that there wasn't a common law version of administrative law. And here he, is, he comes in for, to be criticized for being overly ideological in his approach to the law. Um, and it is claimed that his real resistance to administrative law is the resistance to administrative discretion, mm. uh, the kind of discretion that is often necessary in a legislative scheme of regulation that interferes with the ordinary common law, if you will, or the the exercise of ordinary rights of property and contract and the like. Um, and there is a, um, an element of truth there that um, the resistance to administrative law is a resistance on ideological grounds to what we might call the modern 
regulatory state, the modern welfare state. Um, uh, and, and I think, um, you know, th- th- there's, a, again, uh, an element in which Dicey frustrated uh, the emergence of a modern public law suitable for um, the exercise of governmental powers associated with a, a regulatory state. Um, so uh, criticized, yes, for, for good reason, yes, though I think there are also embedded within his views some important insights as well. Yeah, and we're certainly going to turn to those in a little bit. I think they're they're important to outline. Um, just before we, we turn to that, though, uh, the, your, your, your new book, uh, AV, the title is A.V. Dicey and the Common Law Constitution. Um, I was just struck when I looked through it that it really weaves together uh, some interesting themes. I think it's, it's, it's a bit of a biography of Dicey, and it, it kind of presents him as a man of different contradictions, or maybe a quirky man even. And you also try to combine that with a, a normative understanding, I think, of his version of common law constitution, constitutionalism rather. So what interested you about kind of doing this uh, deep biographical sketch of Dicey um, and, and combining it with sort of the normative points about his common law constitution? And, and what do you hope people and readers will take from that combination? Right. Uh, really interesting question, Mark. Um, yeah, I, I think you're, you're right. Dicey was a kind of a quirky individual. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm beginning to think maybe I'm a quirky individual as well <laughs> in, the, uh, in the sense that I just took things that really interested me and, and, um, and stuck them together. So I'm very, I'm very interested in normative constitutional theory and the analysis of constitutionalism as an idea in the common law tradition. Uh, I'm also uh, a, a legal historian and just interested in stories about people, and, mm. and they seem to go together so, <laughs> in my view, so well here. Right. Other people may disagree, um, uh, and indeed, I think that could be a criticism of the book that it tends to run together different uh, styles of, of legal scholarship, legal history, legal biography on the one hand, uh, coupled with. Um, I'm quite, quite explicit about it, a, a, an account of Dicey's um, work from a particular perspective. I, I do take sides in the debates about Dicey and suggest um, that there is something valuable to see in his work. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I guess really the uh, the start of the biographical part was simply that I, um, I came across uh, uh, some, some unpublished uh, papers that Dicey left, uh, including an unpublished manuscript of a book on uh, comparative constitutionalism that uh, that John Allison at Cambridge has, has um, now edited and published. And my my thought was, I can't really tackle that part of Dicey's unpublished work without putting it in the context of Dicey's other unpublished um, letters and papers and. And so that led me down a sort of a rabbit warren, I suppose, of mm-hmm. uh, into Dicey's life and uh, and telling the story of Dicey as a scholar. Yeah, and again, I just I I think it's just so interesting the way you combine it. Uh, I think people will really enjoy that. So let's let's maybe now turn uh, to I think to to me what was the uh, the heart of the book or the, maybe the the, the to me, the most interesting substance of the book, which is really about Dicey's rule of law. 
And uh, of course, you have so much interesting stuff in there about his views on parliamentary sovereignty and uh, and and related issues. Uh, but I just want to start maybe by, if I can, reading a passage from the book, um, just for our listeners to understand. And then I'd like because this this passage just really struck me. So you say uh, the rule of law, Dicey said, is the universal rule or supremacy throughout the constitution of ordinary law. You go on to say, few of Dicey's claims have been as controversial. Celebrating the ordinariness of constitutional law may seem counterintuitive and underwhelming. Isn't public law foundational and thus extraordinary? Asserting the supremacy of ordinary law may also seem overbearing and even imperialistic. Shouldn't public law be sensitive to the complexities of regulations and the need for legal diversity or pluralism? Still, there remains, in my view, an undeniable attraction to the claim about the rule of ordinary law or the supremacy of the law of the land. If the rule of law is a moral value worth embracing, then surely the law that rules must be, in some sense, ordinary. It must in some way manifest the values that law ordinary, ordinarily manifests. One reason, perhaps the reason, to reread Dicey's Law of the Constitution today in a fresh light is to rediscover the value of the simple but powerful idea that sovereign power gains its authority or legitimacy only when law and its ordinary or common sense is supreme. And this, again, it just struck me because you really tackle some of the main, uh, sort of the main claims against Dicey. He was against diverse, legal diversity or pluralism, uh, the issue of regulation in the modern state. So why is this what you call the simple but powerful idea of sovereign power gaining its authority? Uh, when the law is ordinary? Why is that insight important? Uh, and, and maybe why is it important, especially today? Right. Yeah. Um, uh, thanks for that, that question. I, you know, I, uh, of all the things I, I worry about is, is, is kind of going out on a limb <laughs> on this question of the ordinariness of, uh, public law, or institutional law. Um, you know, I, I, I taught, uh, for a number of years at McGill and, uh, the McGill Faculty of Law is known for celebrating legal pluralism. Ah, right. And here I am talking about something that, uh, you know, from the passage that you just read could be taken as rather, um, uh, overbearing, uh, single-minded, you know, imperialistic is an interesting way of putting it. Uh, and I think the claim against Dicey, especially from administrative lawyers is, um, that his the claim of the supremacy of ordinary law is just the supremacy of judges in mm. in the common law court, and this has a a profoundly negative impact on a legal order, especially if we take a legal order like Canada's, which is pluralistic. Uh, it's a federal system uh, that you know there is a modern administrative or regulatory system in which expertise emerges in particular spheres of life. Um, the, the law of labor relations is specialized. The law of um, uh, environmental regulation is specialized. And within, you know, as, as any students who have done administrative law know, there is this uh, really important emphasis placed upon respect for the deference of specialized areas of law and, and decision makers because we can't impose a single approach everywhere. And, and then I'll just close on the pluralism point by saying uh, in, Indigenous uh, peoples have their own traditions mm. and approaches to um, 
normative order as well. And I think I personally agree that we have to respect pluralism in that sense. And yet here I am saying uh, there's something to be found in old dicey of value in the idea of ordinary law. Um, So I am going out on a bit of a limb there. And I, and I guess it's just this sense that, um, Yes, we have to respect uh, the the varieties of legal experience in any legal system. And I think we do that in, well in Canada. Maybe we can do it better. At the same time, uh, I, I guess it's just a belief in this sense of unity as well. Um, you know, uh, um, I, I, maybe it's the federalism principle, the, the idea of unity and diversity being reconcilable in some way. Mm. Uh, but uh, the, the sense that the rule of law at some level respects uh, uh, it, 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 well, what is it? it? It is ultimately dicey thought, the supremacy of law over executive power. Um, and, uh, and, and, and so if, if executive officials uh, and right up to prime ministers and presidents, etc., or the crown are going to be under the law. It can't be a different law for them. It has to be the same law. It's the ordinary law. Um, there's no point in saying, well, those officials over there are under a law, but it's just a special law designed for them mm. <laughs> that allows them to do whatever they want as long right. as um, this was Dicey's worry, um, as as long as it meets their understanding of what law is. Um, so that's that's basically it, and and it's um, I think it goes back to people often call Dicey a Whig. Um, <laughs> what does that mean? Uh, what is a Whig? Um, well, in the 17th century, the struggle, constitutional struggle, was really between the the Crown uh, and the prerogative lawyers who saw there being a special law of state above and beyond and different from the ordinary law. Um, and that put the crown above above the ordinary law. And then the parliamentarians uh, and the common lawyers in parliament who insisted, no, the crown uh, or executive is under the law, the law as defined by the common law and modified, of course, by parliament from time to time. Uh, so that's Dicey took a side on that debate and it was the Whig side. And that was the parliamentarian slash common law side of things and um uh and i that's the you know the there's something in that concept yeah. of ordinary supremacy of ordinary law of the land which strikes me as really compelling so but i think we embody it in canada and, and it's almost it's so um whether we understand it or accepted at some level that we barely think about it and so yesterday and today we've got lawyers in front of the supreme court of canada arguing about um, you know, the, the, the heart of constitutional law, the scope of federal and provincial legislative authority over, you know, climate change regulations, uh, carbon tax, et cetera. Why are they there arguing before a court of law using, you know, ordinary legal arguments? That's a good question. It, it, it's because the constitution has been embedded within our understanding of law as ordinary it's just one of the run-of-the-mill things that lawyers argue about and that makes some people uncomfortable um uh 
maybe the Constitution or public law should be separated out from ordinary law, but it hasn't been in our system. And I think that's a reflection of, uh, I, I guess you could say, of the impact of people like Dicey. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's great. And I think so on that, you know, on that note of how we like how we accommodate regulatory power with this sort of unified law. Um, I, I was really interested in this distinction that you draw. Um, so there's this commonly understood notion of dicey as, as being hostile to sort of to modern administrative or regulatory power. But you uh, present sort of a different version of dicey and, and your reading is that dicey's hostility to power was to discretionary power that was designed to suppress political dissent arbitrarily, uh, particularly in the 18th century. So can you explain um, this distinction between the commonly understood version of Dicey as being hostile to regulatory power writ large and your understanding or your uh, presentation of Dicey as being hostile to this particular form of discretionary power that was present at a particular time? Sure, I'll, I'll do my best. I, I don't know if it, you know this is maybe a controversial reading of Dicey. Uh, no doubt it is. Um, but I, I just, uh, when you look at his chapter on the rule of law, he starts with um, this this uh, this assertion that that other people from other places, and he's thinking about continental Europe, look at England and they say, "Well, that's interesting. They really do like the law there. Um, it seems to be wrapped up into their sense of, of national culture, about the way they view the world, uh, and." He claims, at least, that Europeans noted a real difference. And um, and then he gives some examples, uh, and Voltaire, one of them. Uh, Voltaire uh, is is a political di- dissident in France. He's imprisoned in the Bastille, and then he, he makes his way to England as kind of, kind of an exile. Mm. And Dicey kind of holds it up, this up as a, a leading example of what the rule of law where it exists does. It prevents people from being arbitrarily detained simply because of their political views. Um, and so it's that example that um, is interesting. So he could have, in 1885, when he wrote the book, selected a, a very different kind of example. He might have selected um, you know, some some kind of school board um Inspector or factory inspector or the the inspector of the sewers or some some uh, functionary dealing with a regulatory matter um, and said, isn't that overbearing that they're using these powers uh, against, you know, I don't know, a property owner in some way? And isn't that a problem for the rule of law? Um, but he didn't. And even by 1885, he could have drawn on examples of, of um, the problem of regulatory power. Um, but instead he drew on a, I, I, and, and had he been writing for, um, a 20th century audience, he might have done that. But I think he was drawing upon an older experience with the problem of the rule of law, which is the exercise by, um, by executive, uh, and ultimately maybe the king or the crown, uh, of an overbearing power in relation to political dissidents. Um, and I think I describe it in the book as an ex- existential problem for power as opposed to a regulatory one. Uh, the, the power, uh, or the problem of how do you protect the state from, uh, serious 
um, split or divisions from within that could lead to civil war, to rebellion, to invasion, to terrorism, you know, emergencies of that kind. Um, and I think when he sketches the rule of law, he has in mind, a, you know, well, it's a case, uh, maybe some law students who are listening have read this case. It's one that I always teach in public law. Um, the case of Entick and Carrington from 1765. And there you have a cabinet minister um, ordering uh, the seizure of papers and, well, in, in effect, the, the search of a house of a political dissident. Um, and that person turns around and sues uh, in trespass, the, the officials who invaded his house. And, uh, and the, the 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 arguments put forward uh, on behalf of the Secretary of State were well, there's a necessity of state. We just had to do it for the good of the state. Mm. And the, the judge says, well, we just don't understand that kind of reasoning in the common law. Tell us what the legal rule is. For right. What's the legal foundation? Is there a statute? Is there a principle of common law that would justify this invasion of somebody's house? Um, and uh, so I, I think that's the model that he has in mind when he's writing about the rule of law in 1885, the, you know, the, the, res- the unique response of the common law to concerns about um, uh, emergencies, political dissent, um, and the like. Not so much the modern concern about regulation and, you know, whether the factory inspector overstepped his or her now bounds in terms of inspecting for health and safety or something like that. Now, I, I guess I have to add that by 1915, when Dicey's writing the last edition of the book in his lifetime, there were eight editions of Law of the Constitution uh, during his life. By that point, it was clear that he was concerned about the regulatory problem of executive power. And he wrote a long introductory essay uh, in which he's very clear about the threat to the rule of law of the rise of the modern regulatory state. Um, and I think that my own view is that that his his original rule of law is not inimical to the rise of the modern regulatory state, and it wasn't meant to be. But as an older man, I don't know that he completely saw that. You know, that, so that's the controversial part. I think over time his views shift. And I'm not sure that he was flexible enough in his in his understanding of his own uh, principles to see how they might accommodate in a new ways, new kinds of regulatory power that were emerging in the early 20th century. So it's a mm-hmm. long answer to your question. I hope it's um, somewhat uh, clear about. No, yeah, no, I'm, it's just so interesting. Uh, just such an interesting distinction. And I think it's. Uh, and it comes from just a close reading of the, of his work. It's just fantastic. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, you know, Dicey seems to be a man of contradictions in some ways. And one of his contradictions is, uh, in his own theory about sort of what he considers the rule of law to be. So on one hand, you say there's this sort of Benthamite conception of the rule of law as a, as a formal or positivist idea. And then he seems caught between the other side of the coin, which is this Blackstonian idea of uh, common law liberties, the so-called inherent rights and liberties of the people uh, themselves. And Dicey seemed to think that 
uh, and I think this is this is clear. You know, he seemed to think that these two sorts of things were complementary. Um, what do you make of this this sort of contradiction between these two solitudes, if I can call them that, in your book? What what is the uh, what is what is the importance of that contradiction to understanding Dicey? Right. Yeah. I, I, in a way, it goes right to the heart of the debates about Dicey and what he was all about. Um, and it is confusing because at different points in his writing, he will say different things that suggested two different kinds of Dicey's out there. Um, so the Benthamite one, this is, the, you know, the Dicey himself would often describe himself as uh, at, at one point he said, I'm an unrepentant Benthamite. Meaning he was attracted to some, at least, of the um, set of ideas that Jeremy Bentham and the utilitarians uh, of the earlier part of the 19th century advanced. Uh, and, and that would include some of the views of, of Bentham's disciple, the legal theorist John Austin. Um, and so that kind of package of views included the idea that law should be seen as an instrument a tool largely of the legislature to achieve law reform in a certain direction. And those early utilitarians thought clearing away the deadwood of the law to allow uh, really the freedom of the individual to reign. And they were, uh, they embraced what's called laissez-faire liberalism. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, that's, that's one vision of Dicey and his, and what he's all about. And, um, in terms of legal writing, you can see that in Dicey's, um, not, not his work in constitutional law, but in other areas, including the conflict of laws or private international law, where he set out to codify, in an academic sense, codify the law, the common law, and to present it as a code of crisp legal rules, which is exactly what Bentham thought. Bentham hated the common law. He thought it was com- completely confusing. Um, and preferred a codified system of law. So there's that dicey, and then there's the Blackstonian dicey, um, the, the the dicey who uh, actually, in the, I think, wins out in the end, uh, who saw a great value in the common law, um, and 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 in terms of approach to writing about law, was Blackstonian finally in the the end, in the sense that Blackstone, if anyone has tried to read the commentaries of the Law of England, the, the, the massive set of four volumes that Blackstone wrote. Um, they're, you know, they're of their time. They're hard to read, but actually they're quite discursive and accessible in a way that doesn't read like a, a code of rules. Mm. And, and there seems to be an, a, a pre, uh, it, they seem to be premised upon the value um or the way in which uh, the, the English law and the common law tradition in particular embraced uh, rights and liberties of the subject uh, in a more organic way. Um, and so uh, if Dicey's like that, then it's, you know, there is this tension between um, an approach that seems to emphasize the legislature and, and an approach that seems to emphasize the common law. And um, and are these things in tension? So I guess this comes right back to your point. Uh, he does see them as complementary. He resists the view that they're in, in tension with each other. And in a short chapter, uh, chapter 13 of his book, Law of the Constitution, he sets out to show how we can see parliamentary sovereignty, which is the more, I guess you could say, the more Benthamite approach to law, you know, the 
this this law as a as the command of the sovereign legislature um and the rule of law which is uh, if you read his account of the rule of law really is um an account which stresses the importance of liberty embedded organically within the ordinary law i.e. common law and tries to present these things as consistent and complementary and reconcilable and that's a part of the book that most people think is the weakest part um and they think it it's a failure the critics of dicey and ultimately parliament wins and his rule of law turns out to be kind of anemic and ruled by law rather than rule of law um it it always succumbs to parliament in the event of a contest etc um so i i um i take a different view on chapter 13 i think there's a lot in there that is really interesting not well developed i have to admit it's too short it, it could have been uh much longer and more developed um but it it does come back to this question of of the different kinds of sovereignty um and he just did, he refused to accept the idea of executive sovereignty um if sovereignty can only be exercised by the legislature and if it can only act through enacting statutes then this means something and this is where it's not well developed about how we can reconcile um the exercise of sovereign power with the ideals embedded within the rule of law mm. um and i guess you know this is maybe getting in, into the weeds a little bit but <laughs> ultimately he um i think this is my view he rejects the view of john austin the sort of the leading analytical positivist legal positivist of the 19th century in fact he was the leading positivist or legal theorist in the english legal tradition right up until hla hart kind of destroyed him <laughs> in the in the concept of law in 1961 um austin had a view that law is the command of the sovereign and who the sovereign is and what the powers of the sovereign are cannot be regulated by law but only by fact um and we identify who the sovereign is as a matter of fact and that sovereign entity person or body um produces law and um and i think dicey thought of sovereignty as a legal concept not a, not a question of fact but of law and once you view sovereignty as a legal concept and you accept the rule of law as another legal concept then you're at least comparing apples with apples as opposed to apples and oranges mm. um and you're at least on the path toward a legal discourse about how these two legal principles could be reconciled in some way mm. there's a lot there that's left unsaid in in uh, dicey's book and uh i think a lot more that could be said about that interesting mm. point yeah so it, it is a fascinating point and i i think it kind of leads me into the next the next question which is um something that uh when i read dicey and as i reread dicey i was just so taken by this by his comments on what he calls the spirit of legality and i guess i view this as a bit of an add on to his unified understanding of parliamentary sovereignty and the rule of law or maybe it's part of the rule of law itself um you describe it as you describe it the spirit of legality that dicey was concerned with is 
would be concerned with normative unity, consistency, or integrity throughout the law. And to me, this seems to suggest that Dicey um, wasn't just concerned with formal constraints, or rather the law as a formal constraint, but he was concerned in part with inculcating a sort of culture of legality uh, in the English tradition. So can you explain this point about what he meant about the spirit of legality? And what does that mean uh, for the traditional understanding of Dicey as a, as a true formalist? Right. Okay. Well, there's a lot there in that, in that question. Yeah. And, you know, again, I think if you could, if we can un- unwrap the, or unravel the, the, that question, we can get at a lot of what, what I think, uh, his contribution could be. Um, so, uh, yes, at various points, he refers to, uh, the spirit of legality. Uh, the subtitle to the, to my book is a legal turn of mind. There's another example. Uh, what is a legal turn of mind? It's um, somebody who accepts the spirit of legality, I guess. Um, or not a word that he uses, but I think he would have liked, uh, which you just used, a culture of legality, a legal culture. Um, and um, and what is that and how is it important? Um, so one, uh, I think one benefit of reading his unpublished book manuscript on comparative constitutionalism, which is now published, as I mentioned earlier, um, edited by John Ellison, um, is that he he begins to explore the differences between different legal or constitutional cultures in more, he he does that already in the law of the constitution with France, um, but he he uses uh, Prussia uh, as an example, this is before German Unification, but uh, the Prussian Constitution has a a spirit. Like he's interested in spirits of constitutions. What does that mean? He he sees that at one level, maybe a formal level, certain constitutions align. They have certain characteristics. Um, they're written or unwritten. They're uh, rigid or flexible. They're ancient or modern, um, etc. And but then he notices, for example, that in his view, the the British Constitution and the American Constitution are quite different. The American Constitution has a written and entrenched constitutional document. You've got judicial review of legislation, all of the things that don't exist in the British example. And yet he thinks the American and British constitutions are way more similar than, say, the British and the French Constitution or the British and the Prussian Constitution. And it's all about spirit. It's the spirit that goes into the Constitution uh, to define uh, how, it's a, as he puts it, a, a subjective view of how participants expect their Constitution will operate. Um, and so in Prussia, it's a militaristic Constitution. It, mm. Uh, there's a military constitutionalism. Um, it's all about ensuring the power of the state and putting the the uh, the, the power of the military at, as a focal point. French constitutionalism is also authoritarian, but in a civilian spirit. It's about those civil, um, well, the, the civil service, really, the bureaucrats that run things and the importance of their expertise and their function. Uh, and then what about the old English constitution? By the way, he, he uses British and English, 
interchangeably, mostly English. Uh, uh, and the, the spirit of that constitution is, you'll not be surprised to hear, a legal one. Um, so uh, the legal spirit is, is this idea that uh, questions of constitutional law can be approached, and it's back to the idea of ordinary law, just in the ordinary legal way, in a legalistic way. Um, so that it could sound very formalistic. You could say it's just the formalism of lawyers getting in the way of a living constitution or the, uh, the way a constitutional system could work. Um, I think he means more than that, though. Um, the forms of law are really important for him, but through, um, the exposition of what those forms mean in any particular case, uh, the legal spirit is one that will strive to explain the answer in a manner that is consistent and coherent with the existing legal answers that are out there. And, yeah. and the consistency point um, in a legalistic way can be seen as very formalistic. It can, in its bad sense, as he says, um, lead to conclusions that are divorced from political or moral uh, reality. But in a good sense, it brings to the legal answer a, a sense of, um, of normative coherence, that the thing holds together in a compelling way in light of certain under and he's constantly talking about underlying principles um, in light of those underlying principles. So, uh, so you've got formalism there, but it's, it's heavily influenced by the like back to Blackstone, the Blackstonian idea of, of a, a common law spirit that in which liberty is deeply embedded, socially embedded. And so you, you can't really upset that legal um, tradition without upsetting the, the larger uh, social reality in which it's found. Yeah, that's uh, that, that, that's my impression as well. I, I think that's right. Uh, and so let's maybe for the last, uh, we have two more questions here I'd like to get to. Um, and let's kind of apply some of these insights to, I think, the area where Dicey is most invoked or hated, maybe, uh, in administrative law. So you, we kind of alluded to this earlier, but it's, it's commonplace, I think, for some to argue that Dicey had has some sort of deathbed conversion to the idea that emerging administrative agencies could be compatible with the principles of administrative law. Um, you seem to suggest that Dicey may have come to this conclusion earlier than, than a deathbed conversion. Um, maybe can you just explain what, you know, the, this, this sort of debate regarding the deathbed conversion and maybe what it means for understanding Dicey? Sure. Yeah. So, um, it, it, the, uh, the the criticism of Dicey's position on administrative law began almost uh, uh, the, as soon as he published his book in 1885. Uh, you know, scholars came forward and said, "Look, you're you're criticizing French administrative law, but do you know how good <laughs> French administrative law is? It may, in fact, be better in some respects than English law in terms of protecting the interests of the individual." And and so Dicey had. Um, in fact, he had misstated the law of France to a certain extent. He hadn't taken into account some relatively recent reforms in the way in which uh, uh, French administrative law had developed into a true legal system. The, the, the main difference between the two systems is public law in the English tradition 
grew in the common law courts, out of the common law courts, whereas in France it grew out of the executive branch and ultimately uh, the Conseil d'État, the, 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 um, the pinnacle of the, uh, the administrative or executive side of, of the state. And, um, and uh, the French example suggests that you can actually, or a system can develop legal principles from within um, the executive branch, but they become legal for a reason. And as soon as Dicey realized that, he had to modify his approach to his critique of French law. Um, he also had to uh, respond to the fact that it was just plainly obvious to everyone by the early 20th century um, that um, that in Britain and other common law jurisdictions, um, there were administ- there there was a rise of regulatory decision making power within uh, administrative decision making units, commissions, boards, tribunals, officials, etc. That could not be that needed to be explained legally, and uh, and his uh, his approach to the constitution failed to do that very well. So in 1915, he wrote a brief article that that acknowledged yes, there is such thing as administrative law in England. It's not it's like not like the French administrative law system, and in part because the ordinary common law courts still assert a supervisory jurisdiction over. Uh, administrative decision makers, but it is um, a move towards something like that. Um, and uh, so uh, that's 1915 is very late in the day for him. He he died in 1922, and many people said, but for that brief article, he, you know, he would have gone down as somebody who was a failure for for misunderstanding the nature of public law in the modern world. Um, I, I think at that point it had become semantic for him, though. Um, he, uh, you know, for, for at least 15 years had been recognizing the existence of a distinct body of what he called official law or governmental law, um, different from French administrative law, unique to the common law tradition, but still addressing the concerns of uh, regulatory power. And um, I guess one quick last thing to mention, which is kind of Curious and interesting, um, Dicey himself uh, was not just the Vinerian professor of English law at Oxford, but also a barrister and um, maintained uh, his position as counsel to the inland revenue um, until, I think, 1890. So um, he argued a lot of cases, a lot of public law cases, and, and some of those cases involved what we would call administrative law. Uh, in fact, I think he was a leading administrative lawyer during his day. Uh, so he argued argued cases that got to the courts, um, well, sorry, which involved the common law courts asserting their supervisory jurisdiction over administrative decision makers through the prerogative writs. So the, the, the leading ones being uh, certiorari and mandamus. And, um, and so he uh, he was well aware of the value of those special um, public law remedies to to control or discipline the exercise of administrative discretion, um, and that's in in terms of of the common law tradition is now really the heart of what 
we learn in administrative law in uh, in courses in law school today, judicial review, a judicial review of administrative action. And so he was a lawyer involved in those early cases of judicial review. Um, he understood what, that they were important. He did. He just didn't want to call it administrative law, uh, but he understood that it existed and was important. And then eventually, near the end of his life, he came around and said, OK, if you want to call it administrative law, call it administrative law. I don't mind. Um, but it's not droit administratif in the French sense. Right. Yes. I, yeah. That's the important point, I suppose. Right. That's yeah. the that, that's the key. So. Now that okay, so the final question I have for you, Dean Walters, is is I'm going to ask you to go on a bit of a limb here, and uh, so we we you know those of us who observe the law of judicial review in Canada uh, have been uh, just I guess preoccupied with understanding the the Supreme Court's decision in the Vavilov case that came out in December of 2019, and um, just in doing some some research into how the courts have interpreted these cases, uh, at least one case. Uh, out of Saskatchewan, I believe, has described the Supreme Court's battle of ruling on the law of judicial review to be sort of dicey and in character. Um, and I found that very interesting. Uh, so what do you, what do you make of that contention? Is dicey, uh, still with us in our law of judicial review? And has battle of maybe entrenched him more than he was, uh, than he was before in our law? Yeah, that's a really, uh, really interesting question and a really complicated one. Yes. <laughs> Um, um, yeah, I'm trying to think of ways of dodging it, um, but uh, <laughs> I guess it depends on which dicey we're talking about. So we have the, uh, you know, the orthodox view of what dicey did, and I'm hoping in my book to challenge that view. Um, so in one sense, dicey, and I think uh, yes and no. Uh, I, I guess what we can see in the law of judicial review of administrative action in Canada are strands of Dicey's thought. And, yeah. um, and depending on which interpretation of Dicey you take, uh, that will, that will influence which strand you think is there more prevalent. Um, I, stepping back from the details, I would say that the, um, the very idea that the ordinary common law courts review administrative decision making in Canada and that, in fact, if if you look at uh, the decisions on Section 96 of the Constitution Act 1867, the courts will say this is a constitutional, a constitutionally protected role for the superior courts. Um, I think that's pure Dyson. Yes. <laughs> um, so the, the idea that you could say end the supervisory jurisdiction of the ordinary common law courts and hand it to some specialized administrative body that did not enjoy the qualities of independence that a superior court enjoys would be unconstitutional or would require a constitutional amendment, I guess you could say. If we wanted to have, uh, again, the, the French system it has a parallel system. It's not the ordinary courts, but a special public law tribunal system. Then um, uh, what would that take to achieve? I guess it could be done, but it would be... Uh, difficult task to do. And so at that basic level, just the idea that we do have ordinary judges who deal with tort law, contract law, criminal law, oh, and today we're going to deal with public law and judicial review, doing the job um, of, of, uh, of reviewing administrative decision-making 
is is pure dicey, I think. Yes. And by the way, it's not pure dicey. It's it's just the common law way um, that has evolved for better or worse. And, you know, there are advantages to other ways of doing things as well um, that that are not should not be ignored. Um, in more specific detail. um well, if we, I mentioned earlier Bertha Wilson's de- decision in the early 90s, uh, very critical of Dicey. There was for, and has been for many years of skepticism about Dicey, uh, and a skepticism about the ability of ordinary judges to, to perform the role of the supervisor jurisdiction well. And it has been abused or was at times or has been at times abused. And you have, Judges with little knowledge of a particular regulatory field entering in and, and kind of making a mess of things. <laughs> that's the that's the the, the downside to right. uh, un uh, or non specialist judges uh, getting involved. And the whole rise of deference, which is so critical and central to Canadian administrative law, at least, is built around. Uh, on one reading, a rejection of dicey or a rejection of a hard, uh, edged kind of uh, ordinary judge review of, of decisions and a, a realization that, um, judges should give deference to experts and intervene only when necessary. Um, and so the rise of the pragmatic and functional approach to judicial review in the 1990s was part of that. Um, it, we still see it, uh, although modified um, in the Gunsmuir approach. Uh, and I suppose you could say if you think Dicey was that hard-edged uh, superiority of the common law guy, um, there's a lot there to suggest he was, then you might see the trend uh, that, you know, these things seem to go in cycles. So if anything, Vavilov is, um, you can see it in a lot of the judges' reasoning, um, uh, a move back towards uh, a sense that, well, the rule of law matters. We need to remember the rule of law and deference has its place, but we need to put it in its place. And it's a recalibration a little bit, I think. Um, um my own view is that Dicey doesn't really help us all that much in answering these questions. It, he, he, he provides a framework, but because, as I mentioned, he wasn't really, um, sadly interested in exploring, um, administrative law in detail, uh, we don't, we don't know. We get, we get the sort of the, the big questions are asked by Dicey and then you know, working out the questions uh, I think requires that we move well beyond Dicey. The one thing I would say though is um, in the, in Canadian case law, you do continually find the, the assumption that there is a tension between legislative sovereignty or parliamentary sovereignty and the rule of law. Um, right. The beginning of Dunsmuir, there's a you know an introductory section where um, uh, uh, the judges engage in that, a bit of a theoretical discussion on that point. And I guess Dicey would say well, tension, yes, but in the end, we want to see these things as complementary. Right. And uh, the one interpretation of Dicey would suggest 
a view in which um, the culture of legality is seen in a more holistic or organic sense. The legis- there isn't um, uh, an opposition between legislative power and the rule of law. There is uh, a common purpose between legislators and judges who want to make sure that the exercise of all power is legitimate and consistent with the ideals embedded within the concept well, the spirit of legality, the idea of the rule of law, and that completing the legislative picture um, and the, you know, the, the playing out of the powers delegated through le- legislation requires that we assume um, uh, a legislative will to respect those basic values of rationality, reasonableness, procedural fairness, you know, all of those key and basic principles that uh, are ex- explored in the cases um, in Canadian administrative law that we both know and love and hate. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that's uh, I think that's actually a perfect note to end on. Uh, uh, certainly, I think Dicey is going to remain with us for quite some time. And uh, I think your your new book just adds so much to our understanding of Dicey. So uh, the book is A.B. Dicey and the Common Law Constitutional Tradition, A Legal Turn of Mind, uh, our get- and the author is uh, Dean Mark Walters of Queen's University. Uh, thank you, Dean Walters, for joining us today. Uh, just a fascinating discussion, and uh, we'll look forward to hearing more about your book. Uh, you'll be doing a, a Zoom talk with Runnymede in uh, October, and so we'll, uh, we'll look forward to hearing more about the book then. Well, thank you so much, Mark, for, for inviting me to chat with you today. I've really enjoyed uh, this conversation immensely. Thank you. All right. Thank you so much. Uh, stay tuned for our listeners. Uh, our next episode of Running Need Radio will be coming out soon in the month of October. And until then, uh, best of luck at school and uh, good luck managing the virus, everyone. Thank you.